Well, this morning I'll invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 34. We'll be looking at chapters 34 and 35 today. And I know that that looks like a lot of text, uh, but we will be reading both of those chapters in their entirety just to prepare you for that this morning. We'll be looking at all the text here, and uh, I believe the Lord will speak to us in His Word today. That's what He has promised, that He will lead us and guide us into all truth, and uh, His Word is provided here for us this morning. So as we look at this together, again, we're in Isaiah chapter 34, and uh, I want to remind you of where we've come from. Last time we were in the book of Isaiah, we were in chapter 33. Remember that in chapter 33, if you just glance back over there, uh, you destroyer who yourself has not been destroyed, uh, you traitor whom none has betrayed. We remember that Judah has been in trouble from this Assyrian threat. Assyria is the great power of the day. They're coming. Just a few years previous, they destroyed the northern kingdom. They saw what happened to them, led them into ruin. And now the threat has come to the southern kingdom. And so, of course, they're scared. And so that last time we saw that, they tried to buy off uh, the king of Assyria, and he said, yeah, I require this much gold and this much silver. And of course, what did the king of the southern kingdom do? He went to the temple, he stripped it of its gold, and he said, here, here's the gold you wanted. And the king of Assyria said, thanks, but we're going to invade you anyway. That was his reply. And so we see that the southern kingdom is in trouble. They're anxious of heart. They're trying all these different options. At one time, they tried an, uh, an alliance with Egypt that didn't pan out. Uh, they're trying to pay off the threat. That doesn't work. We can see that they're searching all over the place for how. How can we be saved from this threat? Because surely we're doomed if we don't. We need someone to save us. And so now we're going to kind of fast forward to the new threat. We know that the Lord does deliver them from the Assyrian threat. We know that. We, in fact, saw that the Lord came and he destroyed many thousands of the Assyrian army it was 185,000. He, he destroys in a single night. The angel of the Lord comes and destroys their army, and they turn around. They say, well, I guess we're not going to do that. And so the Lord saves them from the Assyrian threat. But years later, what's going to come is the Babylonian threat. And, of course, we all know that the southern kingdom is led into Babylonian captivity. We know about that. This, what we're going to read today, Isaiah 34 and 35, really is kind of turning a corner in Isaiah because if you look at chapters 36 and 37, in most of your Bibles you notice it's not, the paragraphs and the sentences are not written so much in a poetic form anymore, but more now in narrative form. So we're ending this section of these prophecies, and now the Assyrian threat, uh, yeah, is still a reality, but Isaiah is kind of fast-forwarding to the Babylonian threat now. Of course, we know they're led into captivity about the year 586, uh, this is the event that we're talking about. Let's look first, Isaiah chapter 34, verses 1 through 4. This gives us an idea of, of, uh, of what Isaiah is going to be telling us. It says, Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction he has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out. The stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall. All the leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. Okay, stop right there. N not a super pleasant picture. I hope we're all agreed with that, right? Uh, corpses uh, stinking and blood flowing like rivers. Uh, that, that's, a, that's an odd imagery uh, to have here, but this is what we read. What is he saying? O nations, all the earth, all that fills it, the world, all that comes from it, the Lord is enraged against all the nations. Who is the Lord enraged with? Everyone. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? The Lord's enraged with everyone here. Not only the people, but notice that the earth itself is cursed, he says, and even the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies will be rolled up like a scroll. Now, we've heard that terminology before, haven't we? That description. That comes from Revelation chapter 6, verses 14 through 17. I think that's probably what you're thinking of. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its, from its place. Now, what event is John prophesying. 
The kings of the earth and the great ones from the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb. The great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand it? And that's from Revelation chapter 6, verses 14 through 17. So we have here in Isaiah a prophecy about, a, about nations of the earth and, and the heavens and the earth itself being rolled up and done away with in wrath. And then we read in John another prophecy with very similar wording. And what is that saying? Now we, we get a clearer picture of what's happening there. This is when the Lamb comes back with His judgment. And He comes conquering to conquer. He comes giving His wrath. And that day will come. I want to draw a, uh, uh, just a, a reality here for us is that when we, so we've talked about this before, but uh, you can follow along with me in your notes today if you're, uh, uh, you don't have any blank, I'm sorry. For those of you who really like the blanks to fill in, we just don't have those this morning, so you'll just have, you'll just have to make your own little notes. Uh, we have, when we're looking at uh, uh, prophecies in the Old Testament, we have a type versus an antitype. Now remember the type is the Old Testament element that is reflective of the antitype. The antitype is the fulfillment of the Old Testament uh, item. And we, we, might, we might think of, uh, for example, King David and Goliath. King David and Goliath in that battle is a type of an antitype, which is Christ and evil or Satan. Right? So we see that picture as a type fulfilled by the antitype. Or we have temporal situations fulfilled by eternal situations, such as a blood sacrifice in a temple. Right? We don't do that still today. Why? Because we have an eternal sacrifice. So we see the temporal and the eternal. Colossians 2.17 talks about shadows and substance. Colossians 2.17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so the Old Testament gives us shadows gives us a foretaste of what is to come. And right now, what I'm telling you is that in Isaiah 34, we're getting a foretaste of what's to come, and we see that on a particular nation here. So right now we read in, in the first few verses here that he's talking about all the nations collectively, but all of a sudden in verse 5, things are going to change. But before we get to that, I want to talk just a little bit about God's judgment or God as the judge of all creation, of all the universe. God alone is the judge of humanity, God alone. He is perfectly righteous. He is just, and he is merciful in his judgments. I want to read a few passages here. I believe I have those references in your notes if you want to look at those. I'm going to read them for you. Psalms 7, 11, and 12. Just be reminded of this. God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. So in his righteousness, every day, God feels indignation. That is a righteous thing for God. He's not, a, he's not a bad God because he feels indignation every day. He's righteous. Verse 12 says, If a man does not repent, God will went his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. Can you get a picture with me of a God in the heavens with an, a bow readied and bent? And can you hear the crack and the pulling of a bow and it's aimed at your soul? This is our God. He is ready. And what is he waiting for? Man to repent. Acts 17, verses 30 through 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because, why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. By a man whom he has appointed. Who is that? Jesus Christ. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him, Jesus from the dead. So we have assurance from God that he has raised his son, Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. He raised him from the dead, and now he is waiting a day where he will come back, and he will, as John prophesied in Revelation, he will come back with his vengeance in hand, with sword in hand, to give wrath on those who did not repent. This is our God, and this is our Savior. Revelation 22:12 Behold I am coming soon this is Jesus I am coming soon I'm bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done What a picture that is James 4:12 There is only one lawgiver and judge he who is able to save and destroy 
The one judge who sits in the heavens is able to both save and destroy, and there is none other. The one who has the power to destroy is also the one who has the power to save. There is no one who can save, there is no one who can destroy, but God himself, because he alone is the righteous judge of the earth. John 5, 24 through 30. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Listen to this. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has also granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has also given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Final one I'll reference here, Hebrews 10, 30 and 31. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember, this is the God who is enraged against the nations. This is the God who has bent and readied his bow. This is not a story. This is the reality of things. Whether you say this God is real or not means nothing. He is God. He is enthroned above the heavens, and his bow is bent and ready, and you will not escape his arrow unless the Son has been judged in your place. So the question then, of course, we need to answer before we move on in our text in Isaiah, will, will believers face the judgment of God? I want to answer that in really two different ways because the answer is yes and no. Condemnation. Will believers be faced with the judgment of condemnation or wrath from God? And of course the answer is no. John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes in him who has eternal life, he who, do, he who does, excuse me, he does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Believers escape the wrath of God. If we're taking our imagery of the bow, believers, believers, do not have the arrow aimed at them, but instead the arrow was released and it flew and it stuck into our Savior. There is no more arrow to fling at you. It has already been sent in Jesus Christ. Romans 2.5, because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of judgment of God's wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, who's this talking about? Those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We read back in Romans chapter 1 and 2. Those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, God's bow, almost, if we hear the sense, is being pulled back tighter and tighter and tighter to feel the wrath of God on you. Everything that you do, you're just storing up wrath for yourself on the day of judgment unless that arrow is released into Christ. 2 Peter 3, 7. By the same word, the heavens and earth are, that now exist are being stored for fire being kept until when? Until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Notice that the godly are not destroyed, but the godly are raised to eternal life. Last one here, 1 Peter 4, 16 through 18. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Listen to this. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. But I, I thought we escaped the judgment of God. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? 
If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will be the outcome, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So in other words, Peter is saying, if we come into judgment from God and we are scarcely barely saved, but saved, in other place it may say as though through fire, we are saved. If we still get the judgment of God, then what will become of those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. So we are judged as Christians. We are judged. It is Judgment begins with the household of God. Yes, we fall into judgment, but it is not a judgment of condemnation. It is not a judgment of wrath. Christ took that on himself. There is no more wrath for us. Christ took it all. But there is a judgment that comes on believers, and that judgment is a judgment of purification or a judgment of discipline. Is that judgment of God? Absolutely. Just a few passages here, and then we're going to continue. This is a very long introduction. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must, listen, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And he says we, by the way. So don't think he's talking about a different all. He's encompassing us. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. But now, when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ, will we be condemned to the wrath of God? Absolutely not. 1 Corinthians 4.4 4, For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Now that's Paul. I'm not aware of anything, but it doesn't mean that I'm acquitted, because who am I? I'm not my own judge. God is my judge. He alone judges me. He, is, he alone is the judge. Right? He alone is the judge. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. That's 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two. So that we may not be condemned along with the world. So there we have it. When we face God's judgment as believers, we face God's discipline. There are specific degrees and circumstances of judgment that we see. For example, teachers in James 3, 1 not many of you should be, listen to this. This is a real warning here. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Not a judgment of condemnation and wrath here, if you are a true believer, but certainly a judgment of discipline and a purging and a purification. And we all know that is not a pleasant circumstance. But there's also fellowship and unity, James 5, 9. Do not, do not grumble against one another, brothers. Why? So that you may not be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Just in case you thought the judge was someone else, the judge is God. The judge is standing at the door. Do not grumble against one another. Have you grumbled against someone else in this room? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't we all? Haven't, haven't we all? The judgment of God comes on that. Or when we think about the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11, 29 and 30. We'll be taking the Lord's Supper today. Listen to these words. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks, listen, judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Because of what? Because of the judgment of God. Is bodily death, wrath, and condemnation from God? No, spiritual death is. Because we all die, don't we? Do we not all die? Do we get sick? Are we weak? That happens, doesn't it? Just because you are sick or weak doesn't mean that you are facing the condemnation or wrath of God. There is a natural process here that happens, but can it be in circumstances that you are weak and ill and have, some have died due to the judgment of God? If you answer no, I'd like to see your biblical argumentation there because it's very clear that the answer is yes. Can you become ill and weak 
and even die at the hand of God because of judgment on sin, speaking to believers. Yeah, it would appear very plain. Can the judgment of God be harsh? Can the discipline of a father be harsh sometimes and more gentle other times? Do we have a perfect father who knows how to discipline? Do we have a word that says, do not withhold the rod. You'll spare your son. So God disciplines, and sometimes it hurts. and Sometimes it can lead down a path that in this life you can't return from. But we have to look forward to the next, which you cannot lose. He holds us in his hand, and there is no one who can snatch us out of his hand. But don't be fooled. There is a judgment of God. You will not, as a believer, face the judgment of condemnation, but you will face the judgment of purification. Now let's look back at our text. So we're going to look specifically at God's judgment placed on a particular nation. Notice he's enraged against all the nations. Yes. But then he turns specifically to a particular nation. Let's look at it. Verse 5. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom. So Edom is who we're talking about. Upon the people I have devoted to destruction... The Lord has a sword, and it is sated with blood. It's gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra. Now that's the capital city of Edom. A great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls, and their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their souls shall be gorged with fat. Verse 8. The Lord has a day of vengeance. We read about that. A year of recompense for the cause of Zion. So again here, just pause, we're seeing a temporal circumstance of destruction of Edom. Specifically, we see in the future, God coming with his recompense or his vengeance upon all. Upon all. Verse 9, And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur, and her land shall become a burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. For generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there will be no one to call it a kingdom, and its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles and its fortresses. It shall become the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches. Wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, the night bird settles and finds, her place, finds herself a resting place. The owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded... His spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them, and his hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. That is the animals. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. Judgment of condemnation and destruction on the land of Edom. A quick map here on the screen. This is where Edom is. If you don't have a visual, that little pink-purple area if you can't read it there, understand, um, is the southern kingdom of Judah, right? This is who Isaiah is prophesying for. This is going to uh, Judah. And then right below them in that yellow area is the kingdom of Edom. So Edom butts right up against to the south of the land of Judah, just to get a visual there. Okay. Who are the people of Edom? Now, we remember Isaac and Rebekah had Jacob and Esau. We remember that story. Okay, remember Genesis 25, 22, and 23. It says, The children struggled together within her. If it is thus, why is this happening to me? She went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, The two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. God had determined that Jacob 
and Esau would be two nations opposed to each other. And Edom is actually what Esau began to be called. Remember when he went to his brother for that stew and he traded his birthright for a pot of stew? And the wording there is, hey, give me some of that red stuff. Um, red is, sounds like the word for Edom, evidently. Um, does it? It's the same. There you go. Uh, it's the same word. So this is why Esau is called Edom for that reason the scriptures tell us. So the people of Edom stem from Esau. Now the Israelites stem from Jacob. So here are the two nations opposed to each other. And here we see this coming into uh, a, a type of fulfillment here. So Israel versus the Edomites, we know that's going to happen. So in verses 5 through 7, we basically have a summary. He says, in Basra, the capital city of Edom, uh, he said, um, this is where my wrath is being poured out or my condemnation, my destruction. We might ask, why is God singling out a particular nation here when, his, when he's enraged with all the nations? Why single out one and focus on it? Well, there is a particular reason, first of all, because of the prophecy that God had had about the two brothers in the womb. But in this particular circumstance, here's what happens. I'm going to make a long story short here, if that's possible for me to do. Edom joins Babylon during the sacking of Jerusalem in 586. I'm going to say that again. Edom joined Babylon. Remember, Babylon is that great force that leads them into captivity. When Judah was under threat from Babylon... Instead of Edom, who was family, saying, we want to come and help. We want to help fight off the enemy. No, they said, we're going to join in with them and make sure that you're crushed. Probably a bad move. In fact, the book of Obadiah, if it's been a while since you've read the book of Obadiah, it has no chapters. It's the smallest book in the Old Testament. It is dedicated entirely to the rebuke of Edom for this reason because they did not come to aid Judah, but instead they turned their backs on them. And I just want to read two verses for you just to see what they did. This is Obadiah 7. All your allies, this is God's word to Edom. All your allies have driven you to your border. Who are their allies? Well, Babylon, they thought they were their good allies. They've driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you, Babylon. They prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have, no under, you have no understanding. You don't know what you're doing. You thought they were for you. You thought you were doing a good thing by befriending the big power of the day. But now in reality, they were going to turn as quick on you as, uh, as they can. Verse 11, Obadiah 11. On that day you stood. On that day, meaning the day of uh, when, when Babylon... Uh, infiltrated the land of Judah and was taking Jerusalem. On that day, you stood aloof. And on that day, strangers carried off wealth and foreigners entered the gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. And you were like one of them. So the people of Edom came up and they said, hey, we're stealing stuff from the temple? Yeah, let's join in and steal stuff from the temple. Oh, hey, there, there's, there's, there's one of the Judah. Uh, he's from Judah. Get him. Get him. That's what they were doing. I want to show you uh, a picture of modern-day Edom. Was God wrong? Did God come through on his word? Is this place a desolation? You can see the ruins. These are, these are ruins from their cities. Now, this was a big, big area of land. This is from the capital city. This picture right here, Basra. That's what you're seeing. If you were to go there today, this is what you would see. Did God lay them to waste? Did God come through with what he said? Is he the judge of humanity? Is he the judge of the nations? Absolutely. Verses 8 through 17 says, for the cause of Zion. God is doing this for the cause of Zion. That is because of what they have done, what Edom has done to God's people, God will bring vengeance on them. And did he? Oh, you better believe he did. They thought they were safe. They thought they made an alliance with Babylon, but they didn't, did they? Absolutely not. 
They didn't know. Verses 16 and 17 tell us that Edom will cease to be a powerful nation. Their land will be lost and desolate. In verse 16, it says, Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing, none without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded, his spirit has gathered them. In other words, this is what the Lord has said, and it's going to stick. You watch and see. So the tone kind of changes when we get to chapter 35. I want to pause here and ask just a question that I'm going to answer. Why was there a prophecy written to the people of Edom when the words were going to the people of Judah? You know, sometimes we read this and we think, oh, you people of Edom, and we think, oh, well, they read this and they wanted to change their mind. They didn't read this. This prophecy was not for them. It was about them, but it was not for them. It was about them, but not for them. Who was it for? The people of Judah. Because they are the ones who feel betrayed. They are the ones who are anxious. They are the ones who feel like, what are we going to do to be saved? God is reminding them, a nation might rise up and betray you, but listen. I am the judge of the nations. I am the judge of humanity. I alone am the deliverer. I alone am the savior. Don't look at other nations. Don't look at them for their wealth. Don't look at them for their power. Listen, I alone am salvation. And that is the theme of the entire book of Isaiah. God alone can save. Your money can't save. Your knowledge can't save. A foreign alliance can't save. A perfect president can't save. Democracy can't save. Whatever it may be can't save. God alone can save. Look at chapter 35. Well, let's just notice how much the tone changes. So remember, prophecy about destruction on their enemies a reminder that God is the one who can save. He's the one who delivers, not other, not other nations. And then chapter 35, verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. That's already different. The desert shall rejoice. The blossom like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Verse 3, strengthen the weak hands, make firm feeble knees, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then the lame shall then the lame men shall leap like deer, the tongue of the mute sing for joy, the waters break forth in the wilderness, the streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, the thirsty ground springs of water, and the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness, just in case you thought it was a real highway. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Thank goodness, because I'm a fool. No lion shall be there, no, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. What is the purpose of this? If we don't read chapter 35 in context of chapter 34, we got something very wrong. Because we take utter desolation and God's wrath and God's enemies and vengeance. Your greatest enemy will be destroyed. So do you see that that's what he's saying? Listen, I'm here to tell you, your greatest enemy has been destroyed. Sin and death have been conquered by your Savior. There is no greater enemy that you have. You can't defeat him on your own. 
You can't defeat them by yourself. We needed a savior. We needed someone to come and save, and who alone can save? God alone saves. And so he came. He took the form of a man born to a virgin. He went to a cross, bore the wrath of God, and was raised three days later in victory. And he will come again to judge, bringing his vengeance with him. Hebrews 9, 27, do you remember what it says? Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and then after that comes judgment. judgment. You have to ask yourself the question, how are you going to fare on that day? When God's judgment comes for you, will the arrows of God sink deep into your soul, or instead have the arrows been flung at Christ? Those are your only two options. You will not be able to run. You will not be able to hide. The judgment of God comes for all. You will not be able to save. You will not be able to plead. You will not be able to beg for mercy, for our God is just. There is one way of salvation, and that way of salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ. You shall see, it says in verse 2, the glory of God the majesty of our God. And what is, how, how do we see the majesty of God and the glory of God? For in the glory of God himself, Jesus Christ, we have seen him. For he is the very radiance of the glory of God, Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus Christ and you will see the majesty of God. Look to Jesus Christ and you will see the glory of God. Or wait, and one day you will see just how glorious he is when his wrath comes for you. What must we do in the meantime, those who have faith in Christ, those who are believers? We must joyfully endure the discipline of God as we live here on earth. For what good does it do for us to complain against the God who is loving us and purifying us? I discipline my children. What good does it do for them to complain against me? I'm going to tell you it doesn't do them a whole lot of good. I want you to turn with me, please, if you would, in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to look at verse 7. The reason is because... The author of Hebrews quotes word for word from this passage in Isaiah where he says, strengthen weak hands and make firm feeble knees. The author of Hebrews quotes from that and I want to see in a New Testament context how might that apply. What is, what is the context that he's applying that in? Because we need to apply it today. So let's see. And what we're going to see is that he's saying, joyfully endure the discipline of God. That's what he's saying. Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 17. It says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Pause, because he's about to quote from Isaiah 35. To those who have been trained by it. Again, parents, how many times do you discipline your kids for the same thing over and over and over and over and over again? The same thing, the exact same thing, even five seconds later. Can't you at least wait a day till you do it again? Act like you forgot? Okay. 
to those who have been trained by the Lord's discipline. Do you allow the discipline of the Lord in your life to train you? Or do you just get mad about it and keep doing the same thing over and over in your rebellion? Does the discipline of God train you? And so he says, verse 12, Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. You see what he's saying there? He's saying the discipline of God put something out of joint. I guess in this case it was my shoulder because I did this. He put something out of place. And instead of it being lame and unuseful and hurting continually, let it be strengthened and put back into place by the discipline of God when you're trained by it. The discipline of God puts it out of place, but when you're trained by it and you're corrected, it's put back into place and you're healed. And in fact, it's stronger than it was before. So let the discipline of God train you. Verse 14. Here we have some ways to be trained. Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness, which without no one will see the Lord, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, that it may become defiled, and that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. There comes Edom back into the picture, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For afterwards you know that when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Be trained by the discipline of God in your life. Don't walk around limping and lame, but instead strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet. The Lord is disciplining you as sons. As sons. He is not condemning you as illegitimate children. You are a son of God. And He loves you. And His discipline comes on you because He loves you. Not because He is angry because he loves you and he wants to see you trained by his discipline. Now, if you continue over and over, what's lame might be put out of socket for good. Sometimes that comes in the form of being weak or ill or physical death. If you're not trained by it. Can that be the case? Yes, it can be the case. I want you to, uh, this is the last place we're going this morning because this, I'm going to read our text for the Lord's Supper today. If you will turn with me, again, this is the last place we're turning. I, we read a lot of, you know what, is there anything wrong with reading a lot of scripture? No. In fact, doesn't Paul tell Timothy to give attention to the public reading of scripture? I'm okay with it. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34. Again, this is our text for the Lord's Supper, instructions to the church on the Lord's Supper. We couldn't have a better segue here. Almost like someone planned it. But it wasn't me, because we do the Lord's Supper every third Sunday. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34, let's just read what it says. Instructions to the church about the Lord's Supper. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Rebuke. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. You get a lot of preaching like that these days, do you? It wasn't me preaching, it was Paul. Here's what was happening. They were coming together for the Lord's Supper, and at the time, they would have a full meal together, and at that meal, they would partake of the Lord's Supper. But what would happen is people would bring all their own food with them, and some had nice, fancy utensils and all this elegant food for their family, while those who were poor were over in a corner and didn't even bring food with them because they didn't have enough. 
He says, so there are divisions among you. You make divisions between the rich and the poor. Does God make divisions between the rich and the poor? You're making a mockery of the gospel. So will I commend you in this? No, I will not. That's what he says. Look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, and he said, This is the cup and the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What is he coming to do? He is coming to save and bring with him the redeemed, and he is coming to bring judgment on the ungodly. Let's not forget what our Savior is coming back to do. Verse 27, Whoever then eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. We don't want to do that this morning. So verse 28 tells us what we should do. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat. Now, before we move on, notice that the goal is not to say, don't take the Lord's Supper because you're a sinner. The goal is examine yourself first and then go and take the Lord's Supper. Examine and go take it. Not, yeah, I'm a sinner today, like I am every day. I better not go up there because I'm sure some kind of lightning bolt's going to come and strike me as soon as I take it. That's not the idea. The idea is take this opportunity to examine yourself for sin, confess it before the Lord, and then go proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For anyone, verse 29, who eats and drinks without discerning the body and drink, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. There's the good news. We examine ourselves for sin rightly according to God's standards. Then we will not be judged for coming and taking the Lord's Supper and acting as though you don't have any sin in you. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If someone's hungry, let them eat at home. If someone's hungry, let them eat at home. So that when you come together, it might not be for judgment because they were sinning corporately and not confessing it and therefore the Lord was bringing judgment on them when they took the Lord's Supper. That's what was happening. About other things, I'll give directions when I come, but this thing... I have to tell you about right now. Three things. Number one, when we take the Lord's Supper, we look back. We look backward, doing what? In remembrance. We see that in verse 24. We look back in remembrance. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Isn't there a sense of looking back to the cross? Looking back to the resurrection? Looking back to the night when Jesus was betrayed? There is a looking back to what Christ has done. We need to do that this morning. Second step is this, look forward. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's a future event. So we're looking back to a past event. We're remembering it. We're looking forward to a future event when he brings us with him in glory. But then there's a third event, a third thing that we need to do, and that's to look inward for examination. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why might someone who has already been cleansed of sin by the grace of God and Jesus Christ need to confess his sin for forgiveness? I thought we've already been forgiven. Because in doing so, you're confessing your sin and therefore bypassing the harsh judgment and discipline of God. My daughter comes to me and confesses beforehand what she's done. Rather than lying about it and acting like it didn't happen, is her judgment going to be less harsh when she confesses before me? He says, come to me and confess your sins. He is faithful. 
He is just and he will forgive our sins. Don't think that you have a God in heaven who will not forgive today. There is no sin too great for the believer that cannot be forgiven. So I don't know where you're coming from this morning. Some of you in this room, I, I don't know at all. Some of you, I know very, very well. We all, all this morning, need to fall on our face in repentance and confession of sin. And then joyfully come and take the Lord's Supper and proclaim His death until He comes. Here at Fellowship Renewed Church, if you are a believer, you are welcome to participate in the Lord's Supper with us today. We uh, have, will have a family come up and hold, hold the, uh, the bread and the juice. And uh, when you come, uh, you'll break a piece of the bread. And when you do that, the person holding it will say, the body of Christ broken for you. Because this is not only a corporate element, but this is an individual element as well. We not only confess individual sin, we confess corporate sin. We take from the same bread, we drink from the same cup, one Savior. And so we come today and we hear that the body of Christ was broken for me, the blood of Christ was shed for me. And we all say that because it was a collective event, right? The same body of Christ was broken for all of us, the same blood of Christ was shed for all of us. And so we come this morning and, and uh, we're going to sing two songs here. And any time... Any time during these last two songs, you come up when you're ready. So this right now, we're about to enter into a time of prayer, time of reflection, a time of self-examination, a time of reflecting back on what Christ has done on the cross, a time of looking forward to what Christ will do when he returns, joyfully anticipating that event, and sorrowfully repenting of our sin. And then once you've done that, come. Come and eat and drink joyfully because our Savior came for us and His body and His blood was shed and so thereby the arrows of God were sunk deep into Him and it pleased the Lord to crush Him for our sake. Let's pray.